Welcome to the second week of the new series we started last week called The Twelve. And um, before we get started today, let's talk about sports, right? Because uh, I love sports. I don't know how, how much you love sports. There's probably a lot of you that could, couldn't care less about sports. But most people like some kind of sport. Even if it's kind of a local thing, like maybe you follow tech, football or basketball or baseball or whatever. Maybe you occasionally attend a game in person. That's kind of another level. But maybe... You're that next level fan that you gear up before you go, like it's a whole thing. And you're, you're loud when you're there. Maybe you're even such a big fan that you'll venture like into hostile territory to watch a game. Like maybe you go watch Tech when they play at UT or something and you've got to worry about getting killed the whole time, right? But no matter who the, the sides are, no matter how different you are and how much you hate each other, we all have one common enemy when it comes to sports. And of course, I'm talking about refs, right? Refs are the worst. I mean, they're, they're the worst. And I have some firsthand experience here, okay? So I'm going to take you back a long ways. I graduated in 1997 from Sundown High School, right? And as a freshman in college, the coach at Sundown called me and my best buddy, um, Mike, and asked us if we could ref a JV basketball game. They were short, very last minute thing. We'd never ref before, uh, but we thought, how hard could it be, right? <laughs> and so they gave us a shirt, they gave us a whistle, and there we were, uh, refing our very first basketball game. And in the first three seconds, I knew we were in trouble. Like, I didn't know what to do with my hands, you know, like there's certain motions that go with every kind of call, and it's just like, it was all moving so fast, and it couldn't have gone worse. I mean, the wheels came off quick, and the fans were brutal because they weren't just fans. They were parents, right? And they were ticked. I mean, I was afraid. And I, I, I kid you not, almost in tears. Like, it was bad. It got so bad, at halftime, there was another game going on in the front of the school, the front gym, a, a girls game. They took a, a ref out of that game and brought him to be with Michael, and they put me in the other gym with another ref that knew what They had to split us up. It was going so bad. So I learned a valuable lesson that day as it pertains to how we should treat officials, right? So if I go to games, do I still yell at the refs? Of course I do, right? Because they're the worst, except for Josh Washington. He's an actual referee, our, our youth pastor. If you see him refing a game, don't yell at him because he's awesome. All right, so, so Jesus, Jesus had a lot of fans. That's what we're talking about in this series. What's the difference between a fan and a follower? A fan, as we learned last week, is just an enthusiastic admirer. Jesus had tons of fans, thousands of them that showed up, you know, just to, to see the show, you know, to see a miracle or two, maybe to get fed, but they weren't followers. The, the 12 disciples though, they were disciplined followers. This is the, the word for disciple in the Greek, methetes, disciplined followers. They, they reoriented their entire lives around Jesus and following him. They left everything. They dropped it all and they followed him. They moved from fans to, to followers. You know, they, they started as a come and see kind of fan, but then they moved into a follower that would come and die. Eventually, most of them would give their lives for Jesus and for the gospel. A fan's a good place to start, but Jesus will always call us to more. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're looking at, you know, last week we talked about Thomas. If you missed it, you can go back and watch it on the app. I would encourage you to do that. Today we're talking about Philip. 
Now, Philip, I, I chose Philip because, you know, I realized I don't know a lot about Philip. And then I discovered why I don't know a lot about Philip, because there's very little said about him in Scripture. He, he makes only a couple of different appearances in the Gospel of John and then once in Acts. But all we know about him is he came from Bethsaida, just like Peter and Andrew. We're going to see that in a second. And also, he's one of the few disciples that Jesus actually went to personally and said, follow me. Nobody brought him to Jesus. You know, they didn't, he didn't come up to Jesus and ask any questions or whatever. Jesus went to him and said, follow me. So we're going to talk about the story of Philip and what we can learn from his experience with Jesus. We'll be in John chapter one. If you have a Bible, if not, they'll be on the screen. Or as I always say, the best way is to follow along on our app, on the message notes. All the verses are already there. All of my points are already there. It's a great way to stay kind of engaged and connected. So John chapter one, verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from, from Nazareth. So interesting thing here. Jesus goes up to Philip and says, follow me. Philip, first of all, he instantly recognizes this is the Messiah. This is the one they have waited for, what Moses talked about and the, the prophets talked about. And then the first thing that he does is he goes and finds his friend, Nathaniel. He's like, you're not going to believe this, but we found the one. And of course, Nathaniel was like, well, let's go. No, he said, whatever, dude. <laughs> like nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? And Philip says, come and see for yourself. Like, come and see for yourself. Nathaniel went, he saw, he, he followed Jesus as well. So just a little sub point here, right? As we get off on the right foot, disciple, disciples make disciples. That's the first thing that Philip did. He, he saw Jesus, he recognized who he was. He immediately went to his friend, Philip, and he made disciples. In this case, he made disciples immediately. Like, that's the first thing that he did. He couldn't wait to tell Nathaniel. So, so Philip's kind of relationship with Jesus was off to a good start. Like he started strong, but somewhere along the way, he got a little bit shaky. His faith wavered. You fast forward a couple of chapters, Jesus is, is gaining popularity. He has just thousands of people that are following him everywhere that he goes. And he ends up kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And, and the scripture tells us that 5,000 men plus women and children showed up just to kind of to see the show. They were, they were fans. And Jesus is moved with, with compassion for the crowd and, and he wants to feed them. But he also sees an opportunity in this moment to test someone. He wants to test the faith of Philip. Now, as I've been kind of studying this, one of the things that jumped out at me that I think is, is fascinating is if you look at the life of Jesus, there was nothing that, that he did that wasn't on purpose. Like he, did, he didn't waste opportunities. Uh, he didn't waste words with people or interactions with people. He always had a plan. He always had something he was working on in, in the background. Even his miracles were for a specific purpose. He didn't waste anything. Even the mundane and menial stuff was purposeful. And I think we'd stand to learn from him if we're going to be Jesus followers. And if we're going to be Jesus to our circles of friends, 
Maybe we should take a, a note from Jesus here and always be on mission. Well, how much different would our lives and relationships with people look like if we were always on mission for him, always looking for opportunities to share Jesus with them? I thought that was pretty cool. So in John chapter six, the people are hungry. <clears throat> Jesus saw the huge crowd of people come to look for him. Get this, turning to Philip, he asks, where can we buy bread for all these people? All right, so he, he's setting Philip up. I, I have to imagine, if I'm thinking about this, like he probably said this with a little bit of a smirk, right? Like he, he can't wait. He knows what's coming, right? He, he wants to test him. It says in the next verse, he was testing Philip for he already knew what he was gonna do. So if Jesus already knew what he was gonna do, why would he be testing Philip? Why would he, he test him? Well, this was an opportunity for Philip to see something in himself that maybe he wouldn't see otherwise. And now we have the opportunity to look at this and see something maybe we, we wouldn't have seen otherwise through Philip. So he's, he's being tested. And of course, Philip falls for it. In the next verse, he replies, even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. So he, he totally goes into like the calculations, the fix-it mode. This would totally be me in the situation, trying to, to figure out, all right, so how do we make this happen? He looks out at all the thousands and thousands of people and he decides there's no way this is happening. It's impossible. Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed these people. Philip is a little bit of a, a pessimist. He's a, a practical thinker. He's a little bit of a Debbie Downer. Now, I, I would ask you if you're a pessimist or Debbie Downer, raise your hand, but I know you wouldn't admit it. So if you're sitting next to one, don't raise your hand. That would be a bad idea. <laughs> but that's a lot of us. I mean, think about it. We, we're good at identifying reasons things can't work or things can't be done, especially as Christians. We like to jump to how they can't be done or like to jump into fixing it ourselves instead of trusting the one that we say we follow. Get this, Philip, who is seeing this impossible situation, the chapter before, I don't know how much time passed, not a whole lot. The chapter before, he just witnessed Jesus healing someone that was lame. He witnessed a miracle firsthand that Jesus performed. And then he gets in front of this problem and he completely forgets about it. It's like, it's like he didn't realize who he was with. What he should have said is, Lord, if you want to feed them, then feed them, right? Like, I'm going to stand back and watch how you do it because it's going to be awesome to see, right? But that's not what he did. He, he forgot. He forgot who he was with. He had a, a little bit of a pessimistic faith. How many of you, if you're being honest, have a, a pessimistic faith? And that term is even kind of oxymoronic, right? It doesn't make any sense, but that's, that's what we do a lot of times. See, we see God move in our, in our past. We can look back and see answers to prayer, ways that he's come through in the past. He's proven himself to us over and over. Our faith has grown. And then we get in front of a new problem, a new kind of mountain, if, as it were, and we forget. We forget too quickly. <laughs> this is a new problem, right? God couldn't possibly do anything with this problem. Or maybe we don't doubt him in, in that instance, but we just don't even think to take it to him. We just think, oh, I'll, I'll fix this. I'll figure it out. We forget too quickly. And Philip did too. Instead of seeing a, a, a possibility here for Jesus to do something that only Jesus could do, all he could see was the problem in front of him. All he could see was the mountain. See, the way God works, mountains 
are just opportunities for God to do the impossible. Mountains are opportunities for God to do what only God can do. Why would God want to do the impossible? Why, why is Jesus setting up this, this whole thing here? Well, it's ultimately for God's glory. It's to point people towards Jesus. And you can see it through the ministry of Jesus. I'll, I'll point out a couple of different times in John 9, the disciples come across this little boy that was blind and they asked Jesus, why is he blind? Is it because he sinned? Is it because his parents sinned? And Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. It has nothing to do with who sinned. It's so the power of God might be seen in him. And he gives the man his sight to give God glory. Then Lazarus dies. You might've heard this story. A close friend of Jesus, he's sick. Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus, come, come back, he's gonna die. Jesus doesn't come, he, Lazarus dies. He finally shows up after the fact and Mary and Martha are upset. I mean, they're mad. Like if you'd only been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But what Jesus says to him as he's asking Lazarus to come out of the tomb, he says, it's all so you would see the glory of God. These are opportunities for God to do the impossible. It's the same thing here. Jesus wanted to show people that God could do the impossible for his glory. So Philip's kind of shaky in this moment, right? He's not really getting it. But there's still people to feed. They're still hungry. And so Andrew, another disciple, he comes up to Jesus and he's found five loaves of bread and two fish. Okay, so, so let's, let's think about this. Put yourself in Andrew's shoes for just a second. You're standing in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And you're talking about how are we gonna feed these people? And you have the audacity to come up to Jesus and be like, well, we have this, right? Which wouldn't even feed the disciples, much less all the rest of the people. But it says something about his faith. A Andrew had some kind of small little piece of something that was like, maybe Jesus could do something with this. And he brought Jesus what he had. And you know the rest of the story. Andrew brings what he had, all he could find, and Jesus does the miracle. He multiplies it. Everyone ate, and they had leftovers. Jesus did the impossible because Andrew was looking at Jesus rather than the mountain in front of him. Philip, in that moment, could only see the mountain. He missed that opportunity. So where's your faith? Where's my faith when we face difficult situations? Is it in ourselves, in our own way of thinking or abilities or resources or intuition, our own ability to, to fix it, to make it right, to figure it out? Or is it, in the, is it in the miracle working God that we say we trust? Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says, if you just have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain move and it'll be moved. And then he says, nothing will be impossible for you. He's telling us it may not be much, right? Your faith or whatever, you may not have a lot of it, but bring me what you have and let him do the rest. Just tell him, I, I can't, I can't, but you can. And the cool thing about that is, whether the mountain moves or not, Jesus always does something in us. Whether the mountain moves or not, he's always gonna move in us. He doesn't waste opportunities. It's gonna be a chance for us to see something in us that we wouldn't see 
otherwise, a chance to, to grow our faith. But it doesn't happen on accident. You may have heard it said this way. He won't always calm the storm around you, but he will always calm the storm in you. He doesn't waste those opportunities. I mean, think, think about the best Christian you know. <laughs> the, the most mature Christian that is in your life. You look at their relationship with God and you're like, man, I want that someday. The thing they all have in common is uncommon faith. That no matter what's happening in their lives, and their lives aren't perfect, they go through things like everybody else. You might have even seen them go through the most difficult of things. But they all have this uncommon faith that no matter what, they have this peace and this calmness about them and this unshakable faith and trust in God that he can do it. That they may not see it right now. They may not understand it. They may be in the middle of the worst suffering of their life, but they have this unshakable trust in God that he is still in control. We all face mountains, right? We, we know this. You, you faced them in the past. You may be in front of one right now. It's not a matter of, of if, it's, it's a matter of when. And when we face these mountains, God's job is the outcome. Our job is not the outcome. We can't control the outcome. Our job is the process and allowing God to do something in us. Thinking you can control outcomes, it just leads to frustration and hopelessness. I think a lot of times we, we, we see faith as some kind of formula, all right? We, we have enough faith and then we combine that with the right combination of words to pray to God and then we get what we want at the end. See, but there's no, there's no formula to faith. Faith isn't some kind of tool that we use to, to manipulate God. God is not going to be manip manipulated. Everyone has a mountain in their life. Everyone has a Lazarus in their life, maybe. Like Mary and Martha, that just made your faith formula completely disintegrate. And your, your faith has been shaken. And, and maybe you're looking at other people and you're like, man, he's not doing for me what he's doing for them. And if he really loved me, he would do this in my life. And if he really cared for me, I would have this answer to this prayer. But the problem with that way of thinking is God's love isn't proven to us by how much we feel him in our lives or how many blessings of his that we experience in our lives. God's love for us was proven on the cross. Now we have the opportunity to prove our faithfulness to him by how we respond when we face mountains, how, how we respond when we, we, we just don't understand. We, we feel a little bit hopeless, but we have gather up all the faith that we can muster. And we say, I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't understand, but I praise you. I trust you because you are God. Fast forward a couple more chapters. You have Jesus in the upper room with all of his closest disciples. It's the end. Everything for these guys is about to come completely apart. And they, they don't even know it's coming, but Jesus does. And he's got a few moments with them. His last few words with them. They've, they've just washed each other's feet. And then he says this, listen, some things are about to happen. It's going to be difficult, but don't let your heart be troubled. Trust me. Trust 
God. And he tells him, I'm going away soon. Uh, and I'll be back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But you know exactly where I'm going. And then Thomas speaks up. You remember Thomas from last week. And it, he says, what are you talking about? We have no idea where you're going. Like, how, how are we going to know how to get there? We're not going to know the way. We don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? And in verse 6, Jesus tells him, I am the way. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And all their wheels are turning, right? They're trying to, trying to put it all together. And sweet Philip makes his next appearance here. And he's trying so hard. The next verse, he says this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. You can kind of get his sincerity here, right? Like he's got the right heart. He, he, he wants to fit those pieces together and understand, but he's not quite there. And he's telling Jesus, just, just show us God. Show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's like, listen, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. We were one. And then he goes on to tell him, just, just believe. If for nothing else, believe because of what you've seen me do. They're still not getting it. What happens next? <laughs> Jesus is dragged off, executed. He's dead. And their faith formula completely falls apart. They scatter. They're hopeless. They have that Mary and Martha experience like, what was all this even for? But see, if Philip eventually came back around, he eventually was such a strong um, follower, a disciple of Jesus, he would go to his death telling people about him. What changed? What changed between, you know, not believing Jesus could feed people to now wanting to die for him? What changed was he saw Jesus alive. He witnessed him. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. And that sealed it for Philip. He, he went on, on to do amazing things for the gospel, brought so many people to Jesus all around the region. And eventually he was one of the first disciples to be martyred, to die for the faith. He was stoned to death. Why? Because of something he heard? Something somebody told him? No, he was willing to die for something he saw. He witnessed it. That changed everything. See, he, he didn't do well with just blind faith. He almost got it, but not completely. You and I don't do well with blind faith. Just believing because someone told us what we should or we read something once or that's how we were raised or whatever. We don't have to believe based on blind faith alone. Philip didn't even do that. Thomas didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. They believed based on what they saw and they died for it. Liars make bad martyrs as we've been talking about in this series. Nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. They went to their graves proclaiming something they saw. And now for us, we can believe without seeing because Philip believed after seeing. That's evidence. We don't just believe because 
grandma told me when I was a little kid, right? We can, we can believe because Philip and James, and Peter and Thomas, they saw and they went to their deaths proclaiming what they saw. We can learn a lot from Philip. You know, he, he started strong, but he faded and he eventually came back around. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you started strong. Maybe it was in middle school or high school or college or whenever you first turned to Jesus. But maybe your faith has, has wavered. Maybe you're realizing you're, you're more of a fan than a follower. I don't know what your relationship with God is like. You know, you, you may be realizing even in this moment that you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you've never been a follower. Maybe you're, you, there's some uncertainty there. Like you just don't know when it comes to your eternity, you, you don't know where your relationship with God is. But you can know today. You put your faith in Jesus, just like, just like Philip did. As he came to the full realization that Jesus came to the earth to die for our sins, to, to take our sin upon himself, all of mankind became sin for us. He was the sacrifice for our sins. He paid the fine. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. He walked out of that tomb. And when that happened, he conquered sin and death forever. And now we have a way to be reconciled to God, to be right with God, to have a relationship with him. And it's not just about punching our ticket to heaven, right? It's about being a Jesus follower, following him in this life. I'm pleading with you today, man, make that commitment. Put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. You can start a relationship with him today. You can know that you know that you know that you're gonna spend eternity with him in heaven. That's the first thing we gotta get right. Put your faith in Jesus and then we've gotta move from just a fan to a follower. Move from come and see to come and die. That's what Jesus asked of his followers. Think about all the fans that followed Jesus. Think about those multitudes of people that came just to see the show, came to get their bellies full. Maybe they were even on the road that day as Jesus rode in on the, the donkey to Jerusalem and they waved the palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna. How many of those same fans would later yell, crucify him. We can't settle for fan faith. We have to settle for follower faith, come and die. Jesus never promised following him was easy. He never said anything about just say a simple little prayer and then your ticket is, is punched to heaven. He said, take up your cross and follow me. What's a cross? It's not something you wear around your neck. It was a device created specifically for executions. Life isn't found in working harder to, to be our best self or to find ourselves or to love who or what we want. It's found in loving who we were created to love, Jesus. We we're created for a relationship with him. It's about dying to ourselves and being raised back up in Christ. When we baptize people, this is what we're symbolizing. 
You know, the, the old is gone as you're under, under the water. It's buried with Christ. You're dying to yourself. And then you're raised to walk a new life, to be a follower. It's in the following that you're believing proves itself out. Like that's where the, the rubber meets the road. Do you trust him or don't you? Do you truly believe or don't you? Do you really think God can do the impossible or are you stuck? Are you stuck like Philip was? You believe, but you're just having, having trouble seeing it. Maybe you've forgotten the way God has proved himself to you in the past. So, so here's my, my challenge today. If we're going to be one of the 12, we have to tell our mountain how big our God is. Not, not just tell God all about our mountain, right? But have the faith to be like, this mountain is nothing compared to the God that I serve. Tell your mountain who your God is. I don't know what your mountain is today. Maybe it's a money situation or you lost your job or it's a relationship that's just broken beyond repair, maybe with kids or your, your spouse. Maybe it's a sin problem. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a diagnosis. But whatever it is, it's got you overwhelmed with the, with the size of this mountain, just feeling hopeless. Maybe you have a, a Lazarus in your life right now. And maybe it's not a matter of your faith. Maybe you've prayed for something for years and you're just tired. Maybe you're ready to give up. Ask God in this moment, what's he trying to do in you through this experience of, of facing this mountain? And remember, whether the mountain moves or not, or whether it moves the way you thought it should, or the way you thought it would, or when you thought it would, whether or not it moves, God is still going to work inside of you, to move inside of you. Focusing on what is broken will never set you free. So what is your mountain? And my next question is, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? And we wanna do that today. We wanna pray for your mountain. This is something we don't do a lot on the weekends. We do it a lot at city nights. We pray for each other a lot. Wednesday nights at 6.30 if you want to be a part of that. But we want to pray for you today. That's, that's what church families do. We're, we're a family. Families hold each other up. They're there for each other. They support each other. They pray for each other. And so as our family, we want to pray for you. But we can't do that if you don't let us know you're facing something. And what that requires of you is courage and transparency and just, just some boldness and vulnerability there. I know it's the last thing you wanna do is to single yourself out, but I'm asking you in this moment to be bold. This is your way of, of acting on what you're saying on the inside. Like, you, I wanna show my mountain how big my God is. Well, this is your, your way to do it. By, by standing in just a second, you're saying, I have the faith that God can change my impossible situation. It's a huge step of faith. So if that's you and you, you're facing something and you, you either feel hopeless or you're just tired or whatever it is, you want to pray that God do the impossible in your situation. I want to ask that you stand so we can pray for you. And if you're watching online, if you fall into this category, comment there in the feed. Our team would love to pray for you as well. Those of you sitting around them, if you feel comfortable, you want to Put your hand towards them. You don't have to touch them. 
Just put your hands towards them and let's, let's pray for them. Let's just pray that God do something in, in, in their heart. That at, at the very least in this moment, that, that he would change their perspective. He would see things the way, that they would see things the way that he does. And that they would believe him to do the impossible in their situation. Let's, let's pray. God, we ask that you, you know, whatever mountain these guys are facing, we don't know what it is, but you do. You know them. You know their lives. You know their suffering. You know their pain. You know their struggle. You've seen it all. And God, I know your heart breaks when their heart breaks. And so we're asking in this moment that they would even now begin to sense your love and your grace and your forgiveness and just your arms around them. Father, I pray that they would have a renewed sense of faith that you can do anything. Nothing is too big for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too far gone that you can't bring it back. You can't redeem it. And in the meantime, God, I pray that you would do something in their heart. God, change their heart, change their perspective. And all of this, God, for your glory. So people would point towards Jesus. I, I pray that they would have a story to tell of your faithfulness and how you've come through in this situation. God, help us not to be overwhelmed by the mountain in front of us, but help us no matter what we go through, no matter what we face, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. God, we come to you open-handed and we say, you do it, you do it. I trust you. Amen. If the rest of you guys wanna stand, we're gonna sing. And this is a perfect opportunity to let God finish whatever he's doing in your heart. We're gonna sing songs about this very thing. This is your way to make this prayer, set the music, say it straight to God, make it your proclamation. We're gonna have prayer teams on the sides if you need some, some more specific prayer. Maybe you didn't quite feel like standing just now, but you want somebody to pray for you. They're gonna be here to pray for you. Let's let God finish the work he started as we sing.